0: So (laughs) Sorry Uh, wait This is not uncomfortable, but it's very weird This is the thing? This is the one Absolutely And now it almost couldn't have happened in a better way Where did you want to be? So it was just like, ah Am
1: I funny? Now if I go over here, am I still
0: funny? Yeah, way better. I never thought about that. Yeah, it's a I don't see it five years from now that you're not my most famous friend. You really have to commit to something. Good to have something pushing the end. Mm-hmm. Cool. That was really cool. Yeah, it might be cool. This is On the Cusp. Hello, and welcome to On the Cusp. Today our guest is Mary Sasson. She is an unstoppable member of the UCB Herald team Winslow. She is one of the founders of the sketch group Hamilton 100, along with me and Robert Stevens. And... I've been friends with her since college. since She's one of my best friends. Wow. This episode is sponsored by Ty Pepper at 6219 Franklin Avenue. Now featuring copies of Us Weekly on the tables for everyone to enjoy. Ty Pepper. If it rhymes with spy sweater, it's gotta be Ty Pepper. So, I met Mary in my junior year of college at UNC Chapel Hill when she auditioned for the improv group Chips. Um, And she got into the training program, and I was actually uh, running the training program at that time, so I was her coach, which is kind of weird to think about now because she's been on a UCB Herald team for going on four years, and I don't really do all that much improv anymore. But it's kind of funny to think that we started out knowing each other in that way. Um, Pretty quickly into knowing Mary, she became one of my best friends at UNC. And we used to do a lot of talking about what our post-college lives would be like We both knew we would go into the entertainment industry, although we didn't know whether it would be in New York or Los Angeles at the time. Um, And I remember going to a panel with her where a lot of people from Saturday Night Live, writers and cast members, had come to talk to the school. And we kind of swore to each other at that panel, we are going to come back to the school someday and be on a panel like this. Maybe not working for Saturday Night Live, but doing something cool in the comedy world. I think there's really something to saying your dreams out loud to another person um, back when you're in college who can kind of hold you to them. And it's been really cool to have Mary out in L.A. And I think for us to have each other to keep checking in with each other and see are we getting closer to our dreams and are we getting closer to a time when maybe someday we could come back to UNC and be on a panel like that. One thing you might notice in this episode is that the sound doesn't sound very good. Um, that's because I recorded this episode with Mary back in 2012, before I really knew what I was doing. I didn't use a professional microphone. I recorded it right on my computer. And so through the interview, you'll hear a lot of what my computer sounds like when it's buzzing. So I'm sorry for that, but I think that Mary's charmingness more than makes up for it. And I think you'll really enjoy the interview. So... Here is my interview with one of my favorite people in the world, one of the funniest people I know, Mary Sasson. Water washes, beach into the sand, clears the exes. I had marked in the desert before that's what it was.
1: Okay, hello Mary! Hello, is this the beginning?
0: This is the beginning of the podcast. Um, we're doing it on my computer because I screwed up and I didn't get... You're too hard on yourself. Um, so we're sitting here with Mary Sasson. Uh, Mary, how long have we known each other? Uh, we
1: met... Um, I always get dates kind of confused. I guess it was 2008. Because I started doing improv in 2007, but we didn't meet until that winter after that.
0: So it would have been 2008 in college. This is at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Um, and I think we met during auditions for uh, the comedy group on campus, which was called Chips. This is important to say because people don't know this stuff.
1: (laughs) Uh, It's true, and if I can remember correctly... The auditions were that on the second night of callbacks, you did one scene um, with another member of people auditioning and one scene with a member of Chips. And I did my scene with Ben, and our suggestion was Brazier, and I was a girl that wanted to grow up, and I think Ben was my mother.
0: And was I okay? You were wonderful. It It was me we were worried about. I don't know, because my memory of doing improv in college is that I felt like I had, like, once I got into CHIPS, which had, like, a training program, and then you would get into, like, the performance group. Um, Once I got into the performance group, I thought, like, well, I've got improv figured out. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I feel like in retrospect, I maybe didn't. But what I also remember at that audition is that everybody was just so impressed with you. You were, like, the shoe in auditioner uh, that everybody was really excited about.
1: That's fun. I feel like... There's
0: been so many different times in my life where I'll think, like, am I
1: funny? I don't know. Like, in this small pool, I might have been funny. Now if I go over here, am I still funny? Like, am I still funny when this happens? So I remember doing stuff at, like, the local theater and doing well, but then thinking, like, everyone in Chips is probably funnier than me. Uh, So, like, I hope they don't even hate me for the scenes I'm doing.
0: Was that a sincere thought? Like, you actually wonder whether people are funnier than you or like,
1: yes, I think that every single, you, you never have that moment of just like, I was funny in this town. and I funny?
0: Every it's, single, yeah. every
1: single time I've gone to a different place. Definitely. Like, I was the funny person. I think a lot of people have this. of like I was the funny person in high school. Well, first it was like, I was the funny person, you know, when I rode in college, I was like the funny person, but nobody was trying to be funny. So can, you know, can I harness that? And then when I went to this theater and started taking classes, I was like, Oh God. I could be such an idiot. I could be such a deluded fool to think that I was funny and then did well. And then when I wanted to audition for the college troupe, thought, oh, God, all these people must be funny. They perform for rooms of 300. Am I funny? And then when I moved to LA, I had that same kind of like, you know, baby pan- panic attack of like, are all these people the real funny people? And I'm, <laughs> you know, this fool that came from Pittsburgh. Kind of things. So. You've got to have
0: a little bit of faith in yourself. <laughs> um, so what's the earliest account of you thinking you might be funny?
1: I guess just, like, making people laugh in class.
0: Elementary school?
1: Pro- yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think humor was always, like, very valued in my family. And I think that, like, especially my oldest brother, Mike, who I think I respected so much, and people said that I looked like him and had the same kind of sense of humor, who's 10 years older than me. So I think I, like, wanted to be, like, funny like him. And I remember just being, like, very, like, snarky and sarcastic, even as a little kid.
0: And what was uh, the, like, first time that you ever said, maybe this could be the business that I was in and, like, funny could turn into how I make my money? I guess I didn't, like, you know,
1: like, little kids are kind of like, oh, I could be a ballerina, I could be, like, a... A picture in the you know major leagues. I could be a, an artist, and then you know sometimes you're not even. Remember when I was little, I wanted to be wanted to be famous at something, and I like remember tooling around with my like dad's golf clubs, being like maybe it'll be a golfer, maybe it'll be a famous golfer, but like having never played golf before, and so I think it was like that for a long time, and then in college, my sophomore year, kind of just like having a hard time being like in college, just saying like if I could do anything, what would it be? And just being like, well, I'd, I'd be a comedian. I'd make you a laugh. <sighs> and just having that moment of like, well, if that's what you want to be more than anything, why don't you just do it?
0: So you had that for the first time in college.
1: The first time I think that I was like genuinely kind of like, I'm going to take the steps to pursue this. And this won't just be something that like, could I do this? Something of like, put your money where your mouth is. You're going to start pursuing
0: this. Um, and I remember you in college like, when you were thinking about whether like you were going to make this your real deal thing, going back and forth, like wondering if it was even a ethical career (laughs) to embark upon.
1: Yeah. I remember just, uh, this might just be me being neurotic and worried all the time, (laughs) but I just kind of, and I still will have this moment every once in a while of thinking like, Oh, this is such some people that always like will say, I'm a comedian because I love making people laugh and I love just like cheering people up and all the joy it brings to other people and it's one of those things oh I wish that's why I did it <laughs> I wish yeah. I were that unselfish because I love doing it because it makes me feel so great But I hate admitting that but it just makes it's the most fun thing I can do and to make a room full of people laugh is makes me feel better than anything in the whole world and I love it and um, so there's part of me that feels like is this the most selfish thing I could be doing Uh, (laughs) and you know should I be teaching inner city schools should I be you know in the peace corps in Africa should I be a doctor should I be a social worker aren't those things helping people more
0: well I feel like some actors rationalize it by going like oh I'm going to do theater someday that like provoke social change (laughs) Do you ever have that kind of rationalization or is your like end goal to be like 60 years from now, like doing what John Rivers is doing? but oh, your own version. If in 60 years from
1: now, I'm, you know, playing casinos. <laughs>
0: That's, John Rivers has gotten
1: farther than that. So our documentary. She's still playing casinos. That's true. Um, I think that like there's levels of humor and I think that all of them are valid, but I think that like, I respect, I think, the most, you know, like Stephen Colbert, what John Stewart does, of just, like, I think comedy at its best can take down, it's the jester that takes down the king or that can poke fun at the, you know, the regime and is just really using it for that satire and things like that. I think that's comedy at its smartest, and I think that, like, that would be so much fun of just kind of, like, using comedy to kind of, like poke holes at the big guy or the bully. I think that, you know, there's a part of me that wishes I did more of that. Cause I think that like that's comedy at its finest, you know?
0: Yeah. But it's like the stepping stones to get to that point.
1: Yeah. And not the comedy, just silliness, just for silliness sake sake is so valid and important to me too, because we, I mean, I think that the role of comedy is also that not to be bleak, but we live in this crazy world where, you know, what, why are some people hungry and some people have too much food? Why, you know, there's so much craziness in this world. So to just kind of like lighten the mood is valid in and of itself.
0: I really like that. But, um, so, so let's go back to you at age, like five-ish. How different were you at five than you are from you at, are you 25? 25, yes. Okay. How different are you at five? How are what you grade at are you in?
1: when you're five, like kindergarten,
0: Uh, some people go into kindergarten when they're five. Okay. It's different for everybody.
1: So, okay. Well, let's say around kindergarten, um, probably pretty sarcastic. Um, (laughs) often pretending I was a dog. My mom said that like she used to get calls home from my kindergarten teacher saying that I wouldn't come out from under the table because I was pretending to be a dog. Um, I think I'm like the biggest change I think from like me as a little kid to me now is that like well, When I was a little kid, like, I had no fear of authority, so you could not tell me what to do. If I had something on my mind, you, I was never disciplined as a kid, so it's like <sighs> you couldn't tell me to do something if I didn't want to because there was no fear of consequences. So I just was like, you, the most difficult student to deal with, I think, in elementary school and middle school.
0: And then the one tactic, I think I remember you telling me that, like, could get you is like, somebody basically telling you that you you had disappointed them or that, like, you weren't being a good friend to them? My mom used to do that. The one kind of way she would, when I was really
1: little, if I had done something that I was being bad, she would say, like, oh, you're not being my friend right now. And that would make me, like, wait, what? Because I, oh, I was obsessed with my mom. Um, I used to sleep at the foot of her door as a little kid so that, like, I would, you know, never, that I was as, like as close as I could get kind of thing always. And whenever she would come home, I would run to her. Whenever she would go for her purse, I would run to her and like was obsessed with her. Um, but I don't think I was ever disobeying my mom because I, I love my mom and things like that. But I, teachers definitely, and coaches a lot of times, um, or like Sunday school teachers. And a lot of times if I liked them, I mean, I would, you know, would, be fighting for their affection so I'd be so good, but if I had any hint that like they were doing something wrong or I didn't think that they were being fair or things like that, I would make their life a living hell.
0: It's funny, I feel like um as long as I've known you, you've had like a fringe authority obsession. Like (laughs) Like like, being
1: obsessed with like Well, I know that I know that maybe you
0: Yeah, I know that maybe you especially maybe that you crushed more on (laughs) teachers than other kinds of people or coaches but it's interesting that like you also like were most angry at those figures when they didn't deserve respect
1: i guess it's like i've always had a thing with authority i think because like my parents are just kind of weird a little bit like absentee kind of parents so at the same time i like needed the attention and affection from authority figures because i like wasn't getting it from home but also it was like they were the first people that could disappoint me so I think that those were the first people that I was, like, willing to turn on. Yeah. And that Like, I think I always, like, am someone who, like, very believe in, like, morality and this is right and this is wrong. And if you're doing something I feel is wrong, like picking on someone or, you know, misusing your authority or anything like that, which is so self-righteous, but that I, like, am so ready
0: to tell you or to do something. So you lacked a little bit of discipline with absentee parents. And did you also not have that many like uh, adult family members uh, there to discipline either? Uh, We like, my family's
1: not close at all with my extended family because my family's having seven siblings. um, And we lived like my dad's side of the family is pretty much all lives in New Jersey. My mom's side of the family used to live in Wisconsin, now Minnesota. So it was, you know, and my parents didn't really have friends. So it was like, Mostly just, yeah, I didn't have, like, adult friends or, like, adult family members or non-family members or even, like, aunts or uncles that I would have to worry about.
0: Um, I remember one of your, like, stand-up bits is this thing called, like, Jungle Kids. Huh. Can you uh, sort of speak to what that bit
1: is? Uh, uh, I, ben loves to, coding my <laughs> stand-up from college. Uh, I guess I've done it out in L.A., Um, this idea that like, uh, my, and I guess it comes back to that, like kind of absentee parents thing is that like, nobody really raised us. I feel like I look back and it was just that like, we just were, me and my seven siblings just kind of left to our own devices and we just had so much energy. We just kind of destroyed stuff and like weren't more or less raised like wolves, like not taught manners or like how to do or what we just would destroy the house and run around and never were wearing shoes. And like, I remember just like we would clean up our room by just putting clothes in garbage bags and like finding place for the garbage bag, just put the garbage bags in the basement. Like, and everything was always very messy. And I feel like I just kind of like learned how to adapt and like learned how to fit into society by just like slowly going over to other people's houses and realizing what should happen kind of thing.
0: You're the fifth of eight, right? The or, sixth of eight. The sixth of eight. So did any of your older siblings act as, like, surrogate parents at all?
1: Yeah, I think that, like, all of my older siblings, to some extent, the old, like, my oldest two siblings, my oldest sister Meg, pretty much, I would say, like, was the strongest kind of in keeping, when she was, she's 12 years older than me, kind of kept this order of kind of, like okay, let's keep it together, you're doing this, we are doing this, now we're, and she's very big into, like, planning, and she's such a leader, um, and, you know, Michael, too, but, you know, kind of helped keep that, like, order and things like that, and I think that, like, there came to a certain point where two siblings would kind of be, like, hey, don't be a spaz, don't act like that, hey, do this, and I think I did the same for my younger siblings, of, like, hey, you can't go to school wearing that, it's dirty, kind of thing, because that, yeah, that was something, too, I was,
0: I feel like you say that to me sometimes.
1: (laughs) I think that I like having taken care of my two younger brothers a lot, kind of that I sometimes will get in that habit of like, if somebody seems like they need to be like taken care of.
0: As boys in the comedy community sometimes do. Yes,
1: often do. I'll just kind of be like, don't do that. You can't say that. And I have quickly found that I may be more confrontational than most people. (laughs) So where do you think
0: uh, your like thick sense of right and wrong came from? Did you just have it naturally or were you picking up on it from somewhere?
1: I feel like maybe being raised strongly Catholic might just kind of bring in a sense of like, there is a, a black and a white, but I also, somebody said something in like, must've been like ninth grade. And I don't know why this is like stuck with me so much, but my, um, she wasn't even my health teacher. She was just a health teacher I remember her just saying one time, what was in passing, that, like, you can rationalize anything. A person can rationalize anything. So, like, just because you can think through why it's okay to do something doesn't mean it's okay. And so I think that, like, that's always stuck with me whenever I'm worried about, like, if I'm doing something innately wrong or right, like, am I rationalizing that it's okay? Or is it, no, it's wrong to do that. And I do think that, like, you know, I believe struggling in like, treating other people and you should be treated, in like, so many things just stem from that.
0: So do you end up playing devil's advocate within your own brain to, like, try to figure out whether this thing is right or wrong or if you're just, like, bringing your own self-interest into it?
1: I think it's not even playing devil's advocate because I think it's, like, try to make sure I'm not entertaining the devil's advocate, maybe. I think that, like...
0: Trying to make sure you're not uh, entertaining the devil.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that, like... Even when I'll be thinking about like a decision or a choice that I'm thinking like, okay, is this wrong? Is it okay to do this? You know, whether it is kind of like, even kind of like, oh, taking something home from the office lunch, like kitchen rather, like, is this okay? Because like, is that stealing? Because usually it's for work to eat food there or so, so is that wrong to take it? Or is it something I'm just like, no, that exists and, some larger corporation buys it, so who cares? It doesn't really matter. Kind of where it's coming from. And nobody even cares. If you would ask somebody, could you take this granola bar home? They'd say, yeah, sure, fine. But then another part of me says, like, well, where is this? I don't know. I think that it's sometimes, too, It just, like, I think I overthink things sometimes. But whenever it's, like, with people, I think that I always just kind of try to go back to, like, how would I feel if I was in their shoes would I like that would I like to be treated that way and that's how I usually try to figure out like oh is it wrong to do x
0: it's really cool as long as you know the other people (laughs) um I feel like we kind of glossed over the fact that you have so many siblings um (laughs) because I've just known you for a while and it no longer (laughs) phases me but I should probably like take the time and go like oh my god seven siblings (laughs) Uh oh uh, yeah. Um, and just for uh, if anybody's listening to this at all, uh, <laughs> whether it was interesting to grow up with so many brothers and sisters.
1: Uh, people ask me that a lot. It's always funny because it's one of those things that like it'd be like if somebody asked if you grew up left-handed, someone asked you like, oh, what's, I guess maybe you can say anecdotes about it. To me, being the sixth of eight, by the time I came around, I already had a big family. And two, it's one of those things of like, what's it like being Indian? It's like, I don't know, I've only ever been Indian kind of thing. You know, I don't know if that's the best, you know, analogy. But it was something that, it's again one of those things you don't realize it's different until there's you're around other people. Well, to me, yeah. having a small family is, is crazy.
0: Yeah, so you can make the educated guess that maybe you didn't get as much attention as somebody who only had two children, <laughs> uh, but you've never experienced that amount of attention.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, someone told me one time, and I I like laughed at it, but it made me cringe. But they were like, Oh, seven siblings? Of course that's why you're a comedian. Of course that's why you want to do this. Like, textbook psychological, like, you wanted attention. Yeah, that's why you want to be a performer. And it just made me so, like, the idea of, like, you just want attention. That's all you are. Made me, like, don't just. <laughs> I'm sure that you know. There's a part of that of like wanting people to pay attention to me and get. To, but it just felt like, oh, I hate it being like that simple of a thing or that kind of just like oh, someone pay attention to her, kind of thing.
0: But it, I mean, I think it is more like this is the way that you're special, and you like being special. <laughs> um, I mean, doesn't everybody wants to be special?
1: I guess yeah. Maybe that's. I definitely think that I wonder sometimes of like. We always play, there's this joke that my family always does that whenever any combination of siblings sits down to dinner or goes someplace, there's always a joke of, wouldn't this be an interesting family?
0: <laughs> if it's like
1: me, and my little brother Matthew, and my older sister Bridget. My mom will always go, wouldn't this be an interesting family? Of like, what if the cars were laid differently and there was just the three of us and that was the family? And I always like think about that of like, oh, what would it have been like to have one little sister? or one younger brother, one older sister, or like to only have two older brothers or to, you know, only have my three older sisters or something, you know, what would that family be like? Or what would it have been like to be an only child or just me and my brother? And I do think there'd be like all resources would have been different, you know, time, money, attention,
0: just everything. I mean, it's, it's kind of a magical experience that you got to have. I mean, like a, a, an experience out of literally a book like cheaper by the dozen. Um, But I I think like fiction writers like writing about big families because there's something charming. There's too many characters.
1: I'll tell you that whenever I've tried to (laughs) write (laughs) too many plot lines, Mitchell Hurwitz could (laughs) have tested that. Uh, I wouldn't have had it any other way. I think that like if somebody, a genie appeared and said, you know, would you rather have been one of two I think that in my, if the same, all other circumstances, um, the same, you know, would I wanted that, and the answer is no, not at all. I had so much fun having so many siblings growing up. There was every, and the same, the other side of that coin of being raised a jungle kid is that every single day was fun and adventure.
0: Do you have any really close friends who are, uh, only children?
1: Um, I think I have like maybe one or two. I dated someone who was an only child and I like, I don't think I'll ever do that again. (laughs) It's just such a different, I think that you do just come from like such a different mindset being the sole center of attention into like, I think there's a lot of socialization you get early on. Your siblings are your first friends and your first like classmates basically. And if you don't ever have to, learn that other people get to go first and other people get to share and other people are more important sometimes that i don't know you're just a different kind of person i can't but i can't think of many like close friends that are only children yeah if this becomes sent out into the ether and that one friend i have that i'm liking on right now (laughs) just feels so what about
0: me (laughs) why are you
1: yeah. I'm fun. <laughs> I just don't understand, too. Of like, what did you do when you went on vacation? You had to hang out with your parents? Like, what a weird world.
0: Yeah, that sounds gross. <laughs> yeah, I
1: just don't, I don't understand. But that is, I think it too that like all that attention would have been so much for me. I think that's the one thing, too, of the other side of the coin of having a little bit of absentee parents is that I like, I could forge my own path and they weren't really worried. Sometimes I was frustrated that they didn't care more about my grades and they didn't care what was going on at college. But at the same time, like the freedom was always very nice that like I had friends who, you know, the parents said, you're going to be a lawyer. You're going to be a doctor. You need this. You need to do this. What are you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? And like, I kind of grew up in a world of just like, as long as my mom wasn't getting frequent calls home or as long as I wasn't asking for money or as long as, you know, I wasn't, you know, outwardly bothering people, I could do whatever I wanted. And, like, still to this day, like, I am so almost, like, I think that, like, the fact that I have so many other siblings for my parents to worry about, like, doing almost non-career of, like, trying to be a professional comedian, I'm so far off their radar that it's, like, they're kind of like, okay, well, as long as you're not asking for money, that's fine.
0: What was Annie complaining about? (laughs) She had all these joys of anonymity. She... (laughs) I guess it's just, like, some people will just talk about, like,
1: sometimes, I'll, I mean, I, yeah, there will definitely be times where I'm just like, oh, my parents don't pay that much attention to me. My parents aren't worried about me in that respect. But then, like, the other side of that is that, like, I'm, you know, I can do stuff and fail or I can succeed and I'm, like, don't have to worry about them being down my back. Or, like, as a kid, I could, you know, I had friends who they weren't allowed in certain parts of the neighborhood. They weren't allowed to leave certain parts of the neighborhood. They couldn't see certain movies growing up. Everything they had to do, they had to sneak around. And I, I didn't. I just left whenever I wanted. I saw whatever movie I wanted. I went to wherever I wanted. And as long as I was home at dinner time or dark, I was fine. And even if I wasn't, I would just would kind of like, hey, don't do that.
0: But yeah, there was, you know, I could do whatever I wanted. Growing up, do you think you had any other, like, other than being really funny, any special skills that set you apart from other kids?
1: I don't know. I was always, like, athletic, but not anything to write home about, really.
0: I was just well, like, how much, what would you enough? be writing home? Um, <laughs> what sports did you play?
1: Um, I played, I think my family was very athletic, but it was just kind of a given that you're supposed to play. When I was really little, I would play soccer in the fall, basketball in the winter, softball in the spring, and swam a little bit. And then <laughs> high school.
0: That's so many.
1: <laughs> and it was just like, that was what my family, you were just expected to do kind of thing. Um. In high school, I played field hockey all four years. Um, I threw in track for two and hated it and just kind of did it because it was, like, expected of me because my family, other family members were good at it. Um, I played basketball in middle school and gave that up. Yeah, and it was always, I was always in, like, the top, like, 20% of whatever sports I did, but nothing that it was, like. I was going to get a
0: scholarship or something like that. And did you not get a scholarship? Like, did you not get any kind of sports scholarship for college? I didn't come in with any sports
1: scholarship. I walked onto the rowing team, and my going into my junior year, they offered me a rowing scholarship. And I literally, I went in to quit to tell them I was going to pursue comedy. As they were saying, they said, here, sign your papers for your scholarship. And I said... Let's table that for a second. I literally have to quit kind of thing. It didn't happen that abruptly, but they, I was going to sign my scholarship the day I went in to quit.
0: Wow. Um, so crew was, or, or rowing was your biggest thing for your first two years of college, right?
1: Yes. I was, you know, I walked on freshman year and was a novice rower, uh, got hurt, um, in the stupidest way possible, was goofing around and, you know, trying to make other people laugh right before as we're about to load buses for the spring break trip, jumped up, um, fell on a curb and twisted my ankles badly I almost broke it, had to sit out for all of spring break, went on spring break trip, but didn't, you know, row at all. Um, and then had to recoup for like a month. And when I came back, it just so happened that um, the varsity team needed a rower and I, the novice boat was already the top boat was already like had their lineup and was pretty you know set and that's the boat I would have gone back to but it just worked out that it was I was kind of on the cusp in between novice and varsity so they moved me up to varsity um, spring for the spring season my freshman year and then rode my sophomore year in the top boat and lettered and
0: I'm trying to think of the geography of UNC, and I don't remember where we had, like, a lake or anything.
1: Uh, it was in Carborough off Jones Ferry. Really? Yes. It was a small little reservoir. It was called University Lake. And it was, Whoa. like, 50 yards shy of 2,000 meters. And 2,000 meters is how far you would row in the spring races. And it was such... And when it would be dry, it would be even smaller. Um, and it was, like, we were at such a disadvantage because we would do these test pieces. Also, it wasn't a straight 2,000 meters. It was, there were two curves in it, which again, your timing, if you're trying to pace how fast you're doing a 2K, your timing's going to be off. But um, we never got to see, kind of practice the right amount. Um, but it was, yeah, it was in Carrboro. It Was, was there like,
0: ever lobbying for the dean to give us a real lake? Is that nobody? Nobody cared about the program. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, it, the program was a for sport, and then, the person who ended up becoming the varsity head coach, Sarah Haney, um, and some other people did some research and found out that UNC was not Title IX compliant, which meant that they weren't, they didn't have as many um, female sports teams or female sports um, players or athletes as they should have. So I did some research and they said that if you make Rowan a varsity sport, you'll be compliant with Title IX. Um, so they, the athletic department said, fine, you're a varsity sport. Which meant that we got all the gear from Nike, which meant that they gave us, you know, a nominal, nominal amount of scholarship money. And, you know, we were allowed to go to all the athlete functions and we were considered a varsity athlete. But it was the sport that they could care less about. Because I could not care less about. You know, we were competing with teams that um, NCAA requirements said you can give, I think, 12 full scholarships. Like, each sport has a different amount that you're allowed to give full scholarships for. I think in rowing, it was maybe 12. Um, And UVA, which is an ACC school, had 12 athletes who were on full scholarships. If the number is 12, it might be different. 12 full scholarships and other ones that are partial scholarships. And in Virginia, it's a big rowing state, so they could have people come in in in-state and walk on and already be great. And in North Carolina, no one was on full scholarship. People, if they were on, like, a $5,000 scholarship, it was a lot. One girl was on, I remember from a year, on a $12,000 scholarship, and that was
0: unheard of. Ah, so it was like... So she was amazing?
1: Yeah, I think UVA's program got a million dollars a year, and I think maybe we got, like, 50000
0: Oh, my gosh. So
1: it was like we were competing with schools that, you know, had ten times as much money as us or whatever the number is. And the athletic director was just kind of like,
0: hey... You're lucky we give you <laughs> anything, so don't complain. Any com- competition on your team for somebody who, like, rivaled you in being funny?
1: Uh, I think that there was... There's other people that I think that, um, you know, I, it's physical. We're going no, this is funny. as me. On the road, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there are people who are funny, and I think there are people who, like... I always think that people who are, like, not trying to be professional comedians... There's, there's people who are maybe just as funny, but, like, they're not pointed or maybe that's not their thing. Um, I do remember that there was, like, every – there was this tradition where there was um, sketch night. And I'm sure they call it skit night. Um, <laughs> during spring break, once a year, they would have, like, the end of spring break, everyone would, like – every class would do, like, a series of sketches, just kind of, like – and the, the rules were, like, anything goes, no one gets to get their feelings hurt. And the coaches that's would nice. do one, too. And it was – the most fun for me and I remember just like unabashedly unashamedly just being like taking reins of it and just being like you're gonna do this you're gonna do that you're gonna do that I'm gonna do this part and I remember just like improvising a speech and things like that and like it was my favorite night and just like having so much fun coming up with like witty things and it was basically like everyone was just teasing everyone else for that night like they were always like it wasn't like you would do a sketch on like the dean and the politics of instinct tuition kind of thing. They were all about, you know, making fun of fellow rowers and teammates and coaches or, you know, policies. And I was loving it, Uh
0: just having the most fun doing Uh that. So what was your first chip show that you ever went to? I went
1: to a chip show the fall of 2007 with people from DSI, DSI being the comedy theater I got started in. There was, like, a town over. Um, I remember going to it, and it would have been uh, CeCe Pierce's last show. Yeah. Um, and it was the impro- It was the time the troupe was all boys.
0: And David Greenslade's last show, too.
1: Yes. Um, and it was the all boys ensemble. And I remember the opening sketch being, I, I started watching it with kind of, like, okay, make me laugh kind of thing, thinking, like, oh, who are these people and things like that having done improv for maybe, you know, four months kind of thing. Um, and I remember being a little bit kind of like the opening sketch was very bro-ish. And I think that um, you guys were trying to point out like, we're idiots, we're all a bunch of boys, what all a bunch of boys do? But it came off almost a little bit kind of like, <laughs> okay, we're all boys and we're doing this. I don't know, but also I think it was coming in with such a chip on my shoulder. And by the end of the show, it was just like, that was a bunch of talented people. That was a bunch of very funny, talented people. And it's one of those things of, like, when you think that you know the community, and then you're like, whoa, who's that funny person? How do I not know them? Kind of thing. It was just a a room full of very talented, charismatic
0: people. And so you you left rowing in the spring of 2000. Um, I did my, completed my freshman year,
1: completed my sophomore year, was kind of, like, in my head, thinking I don't want to go back, but in my my head, too, I was like, I'll never have the courage to quit because this was my family. Rowing was all I had, and I loved all the rowers and the coaches. And it was one of those things of, I, too, don't like to quit things, so I thought, oh, I'll just continue, and I'll finish to finish strong. But that summer was hard, and I didn't love doing it, and it just filled me with dread to have to go back. Um, and that's when I remember I was... Um, I was always up late at night because I worked a job that had at night hours. And I... Uh, what,
0: was that at B-Ski's?
1: Yeah, at B-Ski's, where I worked from, like, the 10 to 5 a.m. shift. Um, and...
0: That's like a sandwich store where you could get, like, a ham sandwich ski or a turkey ski. Aloha ski, the club ski, the California
1: ski. Um, I... I remember just, like, passing by DSI Theater and thinking, like, "Oh, that'd be the coolest thing to do, knowing that, like, a lot of members of SNL came up through, like, Second City and in Providence at that. And I remember one day, like, always, like, wanting to do it, but never doing it. One day, like, checking their website a bunch of times and, like, them being like, only two spots left for 101. being like, why did I sign up for that? <laughs> uh, and I took my first class in July 23rd, 2007.
0: And then did that through... Till the end of 2007 and then auditioned for Chips in the spring of 2008 and made it into the training program and then kept doing DSI, uh, through spring of 2008. Yeah. Kept doing DSI through spring of 2008 while you did the training program Mm -hmm. for Chips and got into... That Ben was my coach for. That I was your coach for. (laughs) (laughs) Um... And I was frustrated with Mary because she <laughs> didn't come into quite enough rehearsals for me to give her a real running <laughs> chance at making it into the performance group. But then she embarrassed me when she did.
1: I think I went down as the worst ink for
0: attendance. Well, here was my take on the situation. I would love so to hear I, it. I got into uh, chips in the first semester of my freshman year. Um, and then I uh, went through one semester of the training program, tried out, didn't make it. Did another semester, tried out, didn't make it. Did another semester, tried out, and made it. And then I just watched you do one semester where you barely came to any of the lessons that I was teaching, and then you made it your first try. Can we say, in because, my defense,
1: as my, my small defense, I'm an idiot, but in my bigger defense... I remember missing because I did a stand-up competition. I remember missing for usually it was missing for comedy stuff or missing for DSI stuff. So it's all stuff that I hated missing for, but it wasn't like I just like was blowing off rehearsal. It just was the most unfortunate things.
0: No, that completely really makes really. sense. And the reason you made it in on your first shot was because you were way better than me than I had been all the times that I auditioned. I never I didn't make it in.
1: understand how people audition for that thing and are successful having not had any improv training. Yeah. I think it helped that I had, like, by the time I was auditioning, I had been, had, you know, three or four levels of DSI improv training and also might have been on a Herald team at DSI and was performing regularly at DSI and things like that. You know, maybe he was doing short form too. Um, I don't know how anyone would have the confidence Yeah. to do improv cold without even having anyone ever said, this is what improv is.
0: No, it's pretty incredible.
1: I, so to me, it was when I was like, well, I've been I've been doing it, I did my best shot, I don't know how anyone does it without having any training.
0: Well, at least when I first tried out for trips for the training program, I had done comedic Del Arte in college, <laughs> and I knew how to play around outside of the confines of the script as the Pantalone character. <laughs> so I had a head start, <laughs> too. But that's how you do it. I always am so,
1: fil- here's one thing I always have figured theater complex of, and not as much here, but definitely in um, college, there was a lot of, everyone else came from a theater background, and I have absolutely no theater background. So people would say things of stage right, stage left, or anything like that, or you know, reference any kind of acting method or thing, and I have no idea what anyone's talking about. I have, I think, maybe just to learn the difference, like, understand stage right Audience right, audience left, kind of thing.
0: And yet, uh, was it the actor who knew what stage left was, or you who recently booked a online target commercial? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> I- <laughs> you know what? You're right. I'm killing it. So, uh, so you're missing my uh, my classes that I'm teaching. At <laughs> yeah, UNC I'm, getting, I'm
1: getting nothing from men. back in
0: in two thousand eight. Uh, and meanwhile, you're you're missing it for stand-up competitions. Uh, and who who was it that I feel like there was somebody famous that you uh, that you won a competition and you got to be the opening act for? You who was that
1: person? <laughs> you didn't even do a good job of feigning. Um, ben loves telling the story. You know what is funny is you're always very good about. I used to love having you around at parties because I you would always brag for me, so I didn't have to brag. Um, I got to open up for Lewis Black because he went to Carolina and would come back every single year and hold a competition for someone to open up for him in Memorial Hall, and I won it my junior year. So I got to meet Lewis Black, and Rob Riggle was there, and John Oliver, and Rory Albanese, who's the executive producer of The Daily Show, um, and it was a, a super fun experience.
0: And meanwhile, there was another stand-up competition going on called the, like the Rooftop National Comedy College comedy competition, which Mary also got really far in. She became, like, one of the final four students in the United States in the end. Um, And it all resulted in this, like, sort of comical reality I found myself in where in the microcosm of our college, I remember in the student union, like, picking up a magazine, and Mary's face was on the cover of the magazine. Yeah, there was, I guess it was Rival magazine that was, like, this UNC Duke
1: magazine wanted to do this it was like a year after that the rooftop thing happened I got to go to Aspen to perform in, like the national you know level of it and um it was like a, it was one of those things where I, like months and months and months later somebody wanted to do a piece on it and it felt one of those like one of those things I'm like oh I that happened so long ago but okay and then they thought the story was so interesting so they put me on the cover of it and it was there was this weird period of time where I remember like asking someone if I could take a chair in the student union and they were reading the magazine and they just looked at me and said, is this you? <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, this is the most embarrassing thing. Uh, yes, that, that's me. And like, you know, took the chair. And I think my English teacher was like, Oh, he was Irish. He was like, as, as you want a magazine. <laughs> I'm like, I was like, Oh
0: yeah. Hmm. The most embarrassing and flattering thing. <laughs> um, I feel like at this point, uh, in the interview, I'm just telling parts of <laughs> your life instead of you telling me. I, but, this is what you're here for. I love this. I'm your James Lipton. Uh, <laughs> but um, I feel like all this brought you to like your senior year of college to a point where like you really like graduated from UNC on top of the world, like with your face on like the covers of magazines and winning these standup competitions. And you, you ended up directing uh Our improv group, Chips, uh, and I feel like you you ended college um, in just, like, this amazing place. And then uh, what was your next step uh, leaving college as, like, a mini-campus celebrity?
1: (laughs) Um, It's nice to think about that. Um, I uh, went back uh, to Pittsburgh
0: to do AmeriCorps for a year, and so I taught in an inner-city school. And was that difficult in the same way that like teach for america seems to be for a lot of people uh
1: it wasn't two years it was only one year but i will say that it was one of the hardest things i've ever done and one of the most ridiculous at the same time uh, we were in a very unique there was five other people is that right joe doug Allison, I don't know. yeah five other people who were also at the site with me it was this is inner city high school in pittsburgh um, and We just had a comically difficult time. We had no support. We were supposed to be tutors. They made us teach a class, but they didn't give us a curriculum. Our site supervisor quit in December, so we didn't have anyone, we didn't have any leadership to ask people from. The teachers thought we were students, like pit students. They didn't understand this is what we were doing. Um, They kept threatening to shut down the high school, so nobody was committed principal would disappear for, you know, weeks at a time and there's a period of like 2 months where she would wear oversized t-shirts, yoga pants and flip-flops and like there was just fights all the time and it was the weirdest experience. And so trying cuz it was these students who came to love us and need us and, you know, but at the same time were so difficult and there was just it ended up being like feeling like you were a mom to 300 students and also in the way that they would, you know, ask you for food. They'd ask you for this. They'd ask you for that. You know, I was giving away money so the kids would finish off the school year because they lost their bus pass. And like, it was just, you got so emotionally invested in these kids, but it was the worst
0: situation in school without giving away anybody's actual details of their life. Like what would be like a typical like student situation? There
1: was, like, so many students had parents in jail. So many students were living with their, you know, their grandparents or their aunt. Or, you know, there's this one girl who her mom, you know, overdosed on drugs when she was three. Her dad was in jail since before she was born. Um, she was living with her, she called him her, like, her uncle, but he was, or I think she, she called him her uncle, but he was really her mom's, like, A.A. friend who just had, like, promised to look after her and her, like, maybe her aunt. Um, Her dad got out of jail when she was, you know, in ninth grade. She was a ninth grader. And I remember one day going into her reading class and her being in a weird, bad mood and kind of asking what was going on. And her dad had violated parole by accidentally shooting a kid with a shotgun because he was aiming for this guy because he wanted to buy, this guy wouldn't sell him cigarettes, and so he came back with a shotgun, and he was going right back to jail, and she was upset because she hadn't known her dad for very long. Like, you know, everyone just, the family support systems were amazing. You know, it wasn't like, like I said before, I didn't know any of my extended family, and I just had, you know, a mom and dad and siblings. They, you know, everyone was your cousin, but if you said, what does that mean, your cousin? It's like, well, really, it's my sister's brother's nephew that I call a cousin or it's my sister's daughter from a third marriage or this or that. And then it was like, but I'll defend him to the death. Like it's my sibling. And that person will, you know, has the same responsibilities and roles to take care of me, and to look after me as my sibling of both parents kind of thing. Like it was interesting to kind of um, figure out just kind of like what their family situations were because it was so different than what I was raised in. But Not necessarily always worse, just different.
0: I mean, that's all so different from anything that I've ever (laughs) experienced.
1: Yeah, it was a, you just kind of, it was, it felt like studying abroad because it was just kind of like you, you learned all like as cheesy as it sounds, the whole new set of like lingo. Like at first I remember going in and people would, the kids would talk and they'd say stuff and you had no idea what they're saying. I remember this one kid came in and was like, Oh my god, Phil's raise is hit. And being like, what does that mean? And what it meant was, Phil's raise, Phil's mom is hit, is ugly. And just like things like that, where you were just like, you were learning a new language. And that sounds so silly of like, what kid comes in and doesn't know how to talk? But like, they had so many like different vocabulary words that you just like would learn and understand. And the way they would talk or like their kid, like just so much was different. And you just, yeah, it was. He was like studying abroad, and Ugh. as sad as that sounds, because it's just like this was a this was a school that was 15 minutes away from where I lived, but it was so easy to like never come in contact with this neighborhood, Ugh. and I learned all the neighborhoods that these kids came from, and I learned like every single neighborhood had a different like phrase that would meant I'm not lying, I promise. Like if you were from Homewood, you would say like, was if, if you said like. Mary, did you take your candy bar? My candy bar. And if I want to say, like, I didn't, and I promise, and I'm not lying, I would say, like, I didn't, homies. And if you were from, like, I'm trying to remember them now. Like, if you were from, uh, what's the one? One would say, like, like ski. Ski, I did not. And someone would say, like, show time, I did not. Like, or show, like, I didn't. Um, and someone would say, like, I'm just, they're just, like, all, they all had, like, Boys, Wilkinsburg would say, boys, I didn't, kind of thing like that. And it was just one of those things, too, that, like, you learned, and it was a small enough school, you learned kind of like, oh, that kid's from Homewood. She, like, sometimes you'd be like, say homies, kind of thing like that. Did you do your homework? Say homies. And they'd be like, I didn't, you're right, kind of thing. But sometimes, which is so weird, is people from Garfield. Garfield would say, Showtime. Someone would be from Garfield, and they would say, like, homies, I didn't do it. I'd say, you're from Garfield, you're lying. Uh, homies doesn't mean anything to you. So like each neighborhood had their different set of things and you could use another neighborhood's like statement of, you know, validity or whatever it is to like lie because you're like, that doesn't mean anything to me.
0: Uh, so all this while, were you still thinking I'm going to move to Los Angeles?
1: Oh, uh, 100% yes. I like, I knew that I was going to move to New York um, when I was in college and I remember, like, that was the plan. And I remember you and Mono, one of my roommates, um, you just were always, like, when everyone else was talking about moving to New York, you just were very, like, silently, but confidently, like, not necessarily silently, but just confidently, like, oh, well, I don't need to argue about it, but I'm moving to L.A. And I remember, like, just kind of talking to me, like, wait, what do you know that I don't know? Everyone is so confident about New York. And you just kind of, you know, saying that, like, well, that's where I'm going to move. I think that there's just so many more opportunities there, and I think that it's, like, the place to be. I think that that's the place to be. You know, like, if you want to do entertainment, why wouldn't you move to L.A. where there's so many more things going on? And I remember then, like, knowing other people there in L.A., like Josh and Tamara, who I knew through DSI, and just kind of, like, doing more research with that, and I don't even know what made the decision for me.
0: But I think we just realized that you moved to LA because my girlfriend lived in LA. Because <laughs> that's why you <laughs> moved That to was LA? my secret, like actual reason. And then I owe it all to <laughs> Madeline.
1: <laughs> um, but I remember that once I decided, like, kind of late in my senior year, I was going to move to LA. Um, that I, I had enough money. I was going to have enough money in the summer before, um, or summer after graduating. I'd have enough money for to be. First, I was not have enough money to have starter money. But I was going to go to L.A. and I needed a car. So I had enough money for a car, but I had then no starter money. So I needed to go. I was going to go back to Pittsburgh to work for a while. Um, and I decided to do AmeriCorps because Josh was doing AmeriCorps. So I looked into it, and it was a full-year commitment. And I remember telling, getting it kind of quickly and being excited about it, um, knowing that I was going to go back to Pittsburgh already with a job. Um, and I remember people from DSI saying, What's well, a bad idea. If you go back to Pittsburgh for a year, that's too long. You'll never move to LA. Um, and to me, I just thought like, oh, I'll never stay in Pittsburgh. It's a uh-huh. wonderful city. Yeah. But there's nothing there for me. <laughs> uh-huh. And just knowing that I always was like, no, I'm going to LA after, I, you know, after the year's over. Um, and so I always knew I was going to go there.
0: I remember having an influential conversation with Jason Sudeikis, I think. And like, John Lutz, who had come for comedy week at UNC, and them sort of reassuring us that LA was an okay place to move to.
1: Yeah, I'm to think, I remember, like, asking them about it. I remember them. I remember talking to um, the, it's funny, the editor of Punchline magazine, which is now, I think, called something else, um, Dylan Idino or something like that, at the rooftop competition in Aspen and saying, like, where would you move you know New York or LA and he lived in New York and he said New York you'll see the best stand up there at any given night and kind of being like knowing I wanted to go to LA but like ooh, we should not hear that <laughs> but I feel like so many I think that whole panel we just kind of heard of just kind of like there were good stories about LA and it was just kind of like everyone's going to LA you know yeah kind of thing and that like LA was a good fun place and Mono just loved LA you know and I didn't love that it was so far away, but it was just kind of like, okay,
0: here I'm we gonna, go. Yeah, we're going
1: to do it. Um, but I always knew that I was going
0: to go there. So you moved from Pittsburgh to LA, and I remember you, from the beginning, feeling like you were like a year behind.
1: Yeah, I think I, as soon as I got there, I think that like, I think I came in the best case scenario and didn't know it until a little bit of a, you know, distance. But Mono and my other roommate, Betsy, um, took, you know, every, they took me under their wings and I, they introduced me to everyone. And it was like, I was speed dating, just meeting people left and right. And they're such like cool members of the community that I think everyone was immediately kind of like, who's this person who's living with Mono and Betsy, who we, you know, we know Mono and Betsy for two or three years. And it was like, it's me, and you have to like me because I live <laughs> with them now. Um, and I moved on a Wednesday, and I had set it up so that Sunday was my first 101 at UCB um, just because it was like, I'm not going to school around. I feel like, you know, because you had been out here for a year, and Robert, our other friend, had been out here for a few couple months, and I remember just like, I'm going to hit the ground running, and I'm going to do this as fast as I can. And, you know, Chris was very eager to just do stuff. And I think part of it was like when I was in Pittsburgh, doing AmeriCorps and teaching, there just were moments where I was just so sad and I just realized it was like, I'm not performing. I'm just misperforming. I think I just would like, I had a year where I was sitting on the sidelines. I was just so ready and excited to just be moving.
0: Yeah. I think it was pretty quickly that we created our sketch group, Hamilton 100, and hit the ground running with that. Um, and uh, I remember like in the... Middle of that happening, you getting, um, you had applied for Teach for America, I guess, right?
1: Yeah, I applied for Teach for America, I think because my idea, I would get it and go to, and like do it in LA, and I would be then have a full time job, be teaching, I think it'd be interesting, um, and then, you know, be doing this comedy stuff. That was my main focus, but I'd have this real job. Um, and I applied for it, and I got to the final round. And they accepted me, but for New York City. Um, I think that was last, almost right before my year anniversary. I'm um, having a moment of kind of like, nothing's happened in LA, but things feel like they're going well. Yeah. Sh- but should I leave? And, and, my, and kind of too, like, I think it was right around the time, must have been earlier than July. It must have been like June, because it was right around the time that my, like, job that I had for most of my first year was ending.
0: I, I feel t- like you got gotten a big like parking ticket.
1: Yeah. I got like a two big, like parking tickets amounting for like $500 or something like that. And like, it just felt like my job was ending. I had, you know, $500 in parking tickets and it just felt like, is this the world telling me you'd be an idiot to turn down a full-time job with benefits? And I didn't even tell most of my family because I knew that they'd be angry if I, they knew i turned it down. Um, and I just, it was such a, a silly little, not a silly little leap, but it was, like, such a thing of, like, it felt counterintuitive. But they also gave me a week to the side, which is kind of weird. Um, and so for that week, I was, like, I need to say no because I'm here. But is this the stupidest thing I'll ever do? Um,
0: and it was. It was the stupidest thing i ever It was. It was, was I'm homeless do. right now. And it's just terrible. <laughs> I'm always hungry. That was June of two thousand. 11 11. and then four months later you got on the Herald team
1: I guess yeah it was October of 2011 so yeah it was I think and I think people had said like kind of like people who knew I was like deciding was like see you were supposed to stay kind of thing uh and it was nice to get something so soon after to kind of be like okay this was the right thing
0: to do yeah I mean I really I really felt that way I had a, when you were making that decision, like, I had always had a hunch, like, Mar- oh, Mary's going to get onto a Harold team, like, when she, like, first tries out. Um, I feel like I said it a bunch. Didn't I? Do you remember that? Or I'm sure do you remember you know. me more going, you're not going to get it? <laughs> you know worthless. that's why are you in this town.
1: No, I think you've always been very supportive in, um, of my abilities.
0: That I felt... Like, yep. Yeah, here's the the reward for making the riskier decision to choose risk over safety and security. <laughs> it's
1: nice if the universe does that. Uh,
0: I was. It doesn't always do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it doesn't always. People are homeless. Um, yeah, it was. It was nice. I think that it like was, it's always a very surreal thing. It's so it's such a weird thing to get cast on something that so many people are trying for. Yeah. It just feels like such a...
0: Yeah. And almost the fact that so many people are trying for it is the thing that defines it as good. It's like, why is this thing good? Well, yeah. so many people want it. <laughs> yeah, why does um, this mean
1: anything kind of thing.
0: I mean, obviously, interesting things sometimes happen to people who are on those teams. Yeah. Um, and so that's one reason. But then, like, I think another thing just comes from how coveted it is.
1: Yeah, it was... It feels weird, like, even talking about it, because I like, think there are still so many people who want it, and, you know, maybe who seem to perform and think that they should have had it over the year, or whatever, kind of I've heard a lot of
0: people say
1: that. <laughs> a lot of, what did this idiot get the spot for? Um, but it's uh, it's a nice, like, it's always nice when somebody kind of, like, you get something like that, and it's a, it feels a little bit like a, a pat on the back of, like, hey, you're doing something right. Yeah hey, you're, we like the way that you're doing things. Keep it up. Keep growing, but, like, <laughs> we like what we see so far kind of thing. Like, and that just felt nice because sometimes it feels like the same kind of thing of, like, you think you're funny or you think you're doing a good job, but, like, are people saying, like, oh, well, she's not falling on stage. <laughs> Congrats kind of thing, you know. So it was a major kind of, like, confidence boost, but then it was also, yeah, it's also one of those things where it's like, oh, boy so many people who deserve this just as much as me. So
0: can you give your your moment of highest anxiety being on a Herald team in the last year um, and your like moment of having the most fun being on them?
1: I'm trying to think of my most... I think the most fun, maybe I'll do that one first, and it kind of ties in maybe the most anxiety, is we Winslow, uh, the team we're on, was so blessed to get cast as mostly all friends. We didn't know Echo beforehand, but he just, you know, fell right into the the fold and things like that. And like Gilly wasn't as close with us, but I know Mono was, you know, good friends with her. Um, But it was the coolest thing to get cast on a team with a roommate. And, you know, with Drew was such a good friend. I didn't know Dan that well, but he was, you know, you know, I would call him a friend and John was a friend. And it was like, just this group of people that too had just kind of like, you know, had come up together, and it was just like these are all my friends, and I don't want to be on a team with anyone else. Yeah, kind of thing. Um, and am so impressed with them, and it's like, I think the highest moments are one every time I realize like, oh, I'm on a team with all these people that I love so much, and then just two anytime we'll like, I think Winslow shares this like goofy sensibility to it that like we always want to do good improv but we always love silliness i think that like there's something we like pride about that and so like when we're being silly but it's still good improv and it all falls together and it's like that old thing of like they said that um the family was like a group of people falling down a a flight of steps that landed on their feet at the bottom i don't think i'm not comparing us to the family obviously at all but it's like when it works it feels something like that like we're all just talking or moving faster than we can think. And if it all ties together in the end, it feels so good kind of thing. Um, so I think those have always been the moments when we do something together, big, always feel like the best because we're yeah. doing it together. And like when people will compliment us up, like you can tell you guys like each other, like um, on stage, it always feels like so nice because you're doing it with your, you know, a lot of good friends. Uh, and then anxiety wise, I guess every once in a while I have, like, the fear of, like, oh, God, am I the worst one on Winslow? <laughs> <laughs> I think that, like, every once in a while I'll, like, feel like I'm just kind of in a funk with practice or something like that or whatever it is, and I just have this fear of, like, oh, God, am I the dead weight on Wednesday? Um
0: And that must be a thing that everybody thinks. I, yeah, I think that I everyone,
1: know? and I think that if I would say that, people on Wednesday would be like, no, we don't have a dead weight. We are we succeed and fail. As I, mean, Drew, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Drew,
0: obviously.
1: I mean, Drew can't do a walk on and we all wore shirts the other day that had a stupid saying that Drew said. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess it's like maybe that's think that I would never want to be like the one holding back the team. Um, but I think that it's like, Winslow's strength is that it's such an ensemble. And I like kind of get annoyed when people be like, even when someone will say like, Try to compliment me like you're my favorite on Winslow. I, I want to be like, oh, that's not what it's about. Because in the same way, like, one is we're a team kind of thing, and two, also because it's like, uh, I hate when people will say like, oh, Drew's my favorite. Drew's the best on Winslow. Oh no, no no, Dan's the best on Winslow. And I just want to be like, stop. This, <laughs> this isn't. Nobody wins when we play this game. But it's silly except to think for about. Drew and Dan, Yeah, except for Drew and Dan. It's To me, it's like, oh, that's not what it's for. It's not what it's about. You're viewing a herald and you're viewing improv wrong if you're picking out MVPs. yeah, Someone can like play the style that you like the best or things like that or support the best or things like that, but it's just kind of like, in the end, it's the same way of like, even if a, you're the person who threw the interception or you're the person who dropped the catch in the end zone or did the penalty, that may look like the moment that you lost the game. That person lost the game, but it takes everyone. To
0: lose a game. So obviously, this last year has been really cool with the Herald team. Um, and you spent a little bit of time as the assistant for an A-list celebrity who must remain nameless due to a non-disclaimer. Oh, likely. <laughs> MDA. But I'll give you a hint. No mission is impossible for this celebrity. It was Tom Cruise, everybody. <laughs> hey, you blew it. <laughs> Uh, we'll edit that out. <laughs> Tom it's <is> so volatile. <laughs> um, I guess the big question is now that you're on a Herald team and you've done, uh, you've opened for Lewis black and your face is on magazines and everybody loves you. Uh, Oh my God. When we talk about- do you ever have moments of being unhappy even for a second?
1: When we talk about that finish line, what if you had finished a marathon and you didn't realize it?
0: (laughs) Right? Um, That's you. uh,
1: Yes, all the time. (laughs) (laughs) All the time what? All the time moments of being unhappy. Um, It's that same kind of thing everyone says. It's just kind of like you think that you're like someone from the outside world could look at your life and be like, that person knows it all. What are they upset about? And I think it's nicer once in a while, I feel like I'll talk to you and complain about something and you'll very astutely be like, you have,
0: you're doing so great. All these things are going well kind of thing. I guess the interesting thing is like, you were working for an A-list celebrity. Now you're babysitting, which is like, not, it's a great thing to be doing, but it's very respectable. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I mean, I babysat too. And, uh, you know, I think it was actually better for my career because I had more time to write and, you know, actually make things. But I know when people say, uh, what do you do for a living? And I would say, babysitter, I would watch me become a zero in their mind. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I, I don't mind it. It was a little bit weird because I went back to the family I was babysitting for before um, working as a second assistant which feels a little bit like a backstep, but at the same time, it's just like, oh, that's just in my mind, who cares? Um, but it was fun being that assistant, but it was also very time consuming. Um, and I do think that it was one of those things of like, I never wanted any kind of job that would interfere from, with like my performing or make me too tired to do things. And that job, while very fun, did that a lot. Um, and while I can't really write, as soon as I can figure out how to make this kid take naps, I will be able to write more but it's nice to have like so much better hours. Um, and it's a little bit less money, but it's one of those things of like, let me just adjust.
0: Mary, you sound like you have really good perspective right now.
1: <laughs> I don't know how much it's just deluding itself into. Maybe that's all happiness is. It's just tricking yourself. <laughs> oh my God.
0: <laughs> um, so are there any questions that I haven't asked you that you think would elicit interesting answers? Anything is that you were secretly hoping we might talk about? I've just been looking really pretty
1: recently, and it just feels like you haven't brought it up. And it's just like, oh what God. is it all for then? I think everyone in LA was really taken by storm by my bangs
0: I got well, last spring. I think we do do a lot of talking about how pretty <laughs> you are when microphones aren't on. But when I'm doing something that I know my girlfriend's gonna hear, I can't be quite as public. Uh, and if we ever kiss each other in this interview, <laughs> it has to be a really quiet kiss, so she doesn't know.
1: But uh, okay. I get uh, taken for siblings a lot, um, which I'm so flattered for. Thanks, Mary. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm excited. My younger brother, um, both of them actually, John and Matthew, but John who's just a year younger than me. Keeps talking about coming out here,
0: to uh, visit or to live. To
1: live in LA, and it's um, oh man, it's so interesting. To I wonder if he will. I always kind of like treat it as like he'll talk about it. I'll be like, okay, well we'll talk, and when you raise up more, save up more money, well you know when it starts getting to be more serious. But I wonder what would LA would be like having a sibling here.
0: Yeah, my sisters talked about it too. Yeah. Living in California, someplace not so far. That'd be pretty cool. Really cool.
1: I always wonder how much of like, it's such a weird thing of like, because I think you inevitably act differently at home than you do with your friends. So I wonder what that world would be like when the two became one. And I would most likely live with him because, you know, why wouldn't I? And that would be so interesting of like, he would get to see what I'm like all the time. And I think there'd be a little bit of, even when he came out and visited, it was a little bit, it was interesting to kind of be like, oh, now you're seeing me with friends, kind of thing like that. Um, I think it'd be really fun, I think that he, like, he's so interesting to me because he's, like, we, Matthew and I, the youngest, just six years younger than me, have almost the exact same sense of humor. And when I was living in Pittsburgh, it amazed me and tickled me to no end that we had the exact same sensibilities. Um, But John is, like, such a different person that, like, It's interesting to me, his sense of humor, because it's, like, not from the exact same place. But that's, like, interesting to me, too.
0: Yeah. And am I allowed to ask whether you have a little bit of a boy in your life right now? Am I not allowed to ask (laughs) No, not really, because I don't know what that is. All right. (laughs) So this gets edited out? Yeah. Okay. What would that conversation be? It would be... Oh, uh, so you have a boy in your life? Oh, we're we're pen paling <laughs> and sometimes sleeping together, and it's a big mistake. <laughs> uh, and I'm I'm slowly accidentally falling in love, but it's only going to end horribly. <laughs> but he made a line team. <laughs> Can I keep all this in? No. Oh, man, it's going to go in. <laughs> You're listening to it in your car.
1: Ah! <laughs> I crashed. Not you, the b- viewer. Oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. no, no, no. Uh, well, thank you so much, Mary. Ben, thank you. I love you. And, Plasonically And, and, and. Thank you for sitting on my couch with me,
1: Ben. Thank you for having me on your couch.
0: It's a nice couch, guys. Um, let's make some some more Hamilton 100 sketches together, and let's have uh, you get so big in the meantime that you have to drop out of the group and really hurt my feelings.
1: Hey, man! Right back at you.
0: Aww. <laughs> you may notice that Mary told me to cut that last part of the episode and I didn't you know I didn't because you just heard it Um, and that's because it's two years later and Mary is in the middle of a really cool relationship with the guy I was talking about Matt Cohen and I think that uh, she'd probably be okay uh, with that part making it in because it now has become historically significant um but of course, uh, Mary, if you're listening to this, uh, I'm sorry if you're angry, and if you're not angry, then yay! Um, if you want to see Mary perform live, you can see her almost every Monday with her Herald Team Winslow at the UCB Theater. Um, we are going to be putting some new Hamilton 100 sketch videos out soon, so look out for those. And you can also see Mary performing stand up around LA. Just type in her name, and I'm sure Google will tell you where it is, or if it's an open mic, then it won't. Special thanks to my producer, CC Pierce, to Casey Trela for all the music in this episode, and to my sound editor, Joe Burge. This has been On the Cusp. Be-de-dee, 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 be-de-dee. That's your outro music.